Theological education should be accessible. In the past, men have had to leave their local churches to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, you can now complete a seminary education while staying in your own church and being mentored by your own pastor. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here with my co-host, Dewey Doval, and today we have the privilege of having Julius Santiago on our podcast. Welcome to the podcast, brother. Thanks for having me. And Julius, since you are uh, new to our audience, can you spend some time briefly introducing yourself before we start talking about our subject today? Sure. Uh, Julius Santiago, I was born and raised in Chicago, and my wife and I have moved, um, in light of the commendation I received to prepare for the gospel ministry, moved to uh, Texas to study full-time at IRBS. So I'm a full-time MDiv student there as well as a pastoral intern at Faith Community Baptist Church in Fort Worth. Uh, That church is shepherded by Jason Montgomery, who's also a professor of church history at IRBS. Um, I have a wife whose name is Jasmine, and I have two small children, Selah and Solomon. And right now I'm carrying quite a load with studies and, uh, and enjoying serving the church. So that's a little bit about me. My burden, I should say, my burden is to pursue church planting in Chicago upon graduation. There's no confession of Reformed Baptist Church uh, in the city of Chicago. The closest one is an hour and 40 minutes away in New Berlin, Wisconsin. Um, so my, my heart's desire is to return to work towards church planting there. And if the Lord opens up opportunity to pursue postgraduate studies as well. Wonderful. It's good to be able to connect here with a fellow Texan. Uh, I'm originally from the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and I am very much familiar with uh, the ministry of Dr. Montgomery there. It's good to hear that you're um, really being able to get plugged in there under a godly yeah. man and to have some great studies as well at IRBS, uh, Julius. So um, we're really excited to be able to talk with you today about your book, um, preaching as a means of grace, and really just wanted to, as we begin this conversation today, um, we want to first get your feedback as to why you chose to write this book in the first place, and and really uh, just pick your brain as to uh, the particular ways you hope that this work is going to impact its readers. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, my my burden was to write a book on preaching that not only the preacher can pick up. But the hearer can pick up. I think a lot of books on preaching are written primarily for the preacher, and few are written uh, with the hearer in mind. Uh, and also a book that focused not so much on the method of preaching, but as on the theology of preaching. So my goal in this book is to encourage not just the preacher, but the hearer uh, to be a more faithful hearer of the preached word, to consider what is happening when faithful preaching is taking place. So that's my goal. Mm. And as Dewey mentioned, the title of your book is Preaching as a Means of Grace, which uh, 
hopefully provokes a number of questions for us to ask you. We'll start with what are the means of grace and how do you describe the means of grace in your book yeah. that you've written on this subject? Yeah, so in chapter one, I lay out the book setting the context with the means of grace in chapter one. And I start off by saying that the, the Christian life from beginning to end is by grace. Um, all the benefits of our redemption, our justification, adoption, sanctification, etc. These are by grace. But the question is, how do we receive that grace? And the answer is the means. The means of grace are those ways through which God promises to dispense the blessings of salvation. I go through uh, in this chapter the different marks of the means of grace. Um, first, those means are dominical. And by dominical, we mean that they are instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant for use in the church. And by covenantal, we mean that these means alone come with the promise of divine blessing for salvation. And we see this in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, verses 19 and 20, the word there, commanded, uh, we find the dominical institution. The Lord is commanding uh, these things. And in verse 20, we find the covenantal blessing. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ promises to bless uh, these means. And we need the whole Great Commission. You know, the Great Commission there involves the following baptism, which is also a means of grace. It implies having heard and responded to the word, the primary means of grace. Um, making disciples there means continuing to teach them the word as the primary means. And to obey, that all I, to obey all that I have commanded you, that includes prayer. And the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. So this whole Great Commission, uh, we find both the dominical uh, and the covenantal marks of the means of grace. I go on to talk about how these means are outward and ordinary. And by outward, we mean that they are visible signs. Word, water, bread, wine. Uh, but a sign on the street right, is not the place or thing that it points to. So with the means of grace, they're not the reality being signified. They are the outward signs that point us to an inward reality. And this inward reality is produced by God, the Holy Spirit. So, for example, when the outward sign of the word goes forth from the preacher, it's the Holy Spirit that enables the sinner to believe these words, thus making the preached word effectual for that sinner's salvation and sanctification. So that's what we mean by outward. Uh, by ordinary, we mean that these means are the ways in which God usually works. This is not to suggest that this is the only way in which God works. God is sovereign. He can work above or beside without these means. But these are the ways he has chosen to ordinarily work to save his people. And then I also turn to efficacy and success. Because the question is, how, how does this work? How do the means that God has promised to bless have good effect upon his people? And we deny that they work in and of themselves, ex opera operato, as Roman cysts. Instead, they have good effect by the blessing of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the necessity of faith. First, by the blessing of Christ, we believe that Christ blesses what he commands. Second, he communicates his presence here below, and we have to ask how. That's by the work of the Holy Spirit. But third, it's the Spirit of God that works in the heart of the elect, and he does so through faith. 
This is not to suggest that faith is a work. Faith is grace. And so we can say that we need the grace of faith in order to receive the spiritual blessing through the mechanism or the instrument of the means of grace. And by success, by success, this is interesting. I don't know if you guys want to spend time talking about the different definitions of, of success throughout the modern church, but by success, we mean that what our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king, what he has provided, what he has commanded, he blesses. And this is enough for us. You know, it's easy for us to think that God works fast-paced through these means, but while they come with the blessing, the fruit is often slow, it's often imperceptible. The means of grace are not quick fixes or um, yeah, things that we can expect uh, work like other things in this natural world, but rather they're gifts, gifts given by Christ. So in summary, we need the means of grace to patiently wait upon the Lord to work through the means of grace. We need the grace of faith to trust that the Lord is working in ways opposite than we uh, might expect. So that's at least the first chapter in summary. Uh, these are the means of grace and these are the marks of the means of grace. That's very clarifying. Uh, I think our listeners will really enjoy um, that definition and, and that framework you've provided us with uh, regarding the opening portion of your book. It's, it's interesting that uh, we're, we're on the subject of preaching coming off the heels of the, uh, the Covenant Conference that Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary put on this past weekend. We got to sit under some really great preaching, uh, one of which, uh, one of the preachers was Paul Washer. And um, if anybody has ever had any um, significant experience sitting under Paul Washer's proclamation of the Word of God, you see a man who is utterly convinced that ordinary, faithful, and consistent preaching of God's Word will result in conversion, will result in sanctification, will result in the church growing and flourishing. And one thing that, that Washer has said that's really stuck with me that I think uh, is, a, is a helpful uh, addendum to everything you just said, Julius, is that um, if you go into any church or into any mission field, if you preach long enough and you preach true enough, somebody's coming out of there saved and... Uh, the people of God who already exist in that context are going to be richly edified as well. So um, I think that you really hit the nail right on the head there um, in, in what you develop in the opening part of your book. But I want us to now transition uh, a little bit deeper into your work here. You, you alluded to it in your uh, opening comments, just giving the listener an idea of who you are and what the Lord's doing um, in your life. Uh, you mentioned that your desire to really provide a theology of, of preaching or or an ex, um, a description of what's taking place during the preaching event itself. So I just think it would be really helpful to to kind of park there for a few moments and, and just get your perspective on what preaching is. Uh, how would you describe? How do you describe it in your book? Perhaps would be would be really useful for us uh, in in our conversation here today. Sure, that's a great question. I go into uh, chapters two and three, addressing providing a definition of preaching as the primary means of grace and then defending that. In chapter two, I defend what it is. This is the definition I provide. Preaching as the primary means of grace is the word of God at work in all who are listening, both judging and saving through the word and presence of Christ, who makes it to have saving effect upon his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And in chapter two, I, I, I use 1 Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And here we see that, we see several things, but first that the preaching of the word of God, the faithful preaching, the word of God is the word of God. It is the word of God. We can literally translate uh, Paul's words there as when you received the hearing word, which is the word of God. Preaching then is more than just the explanation and exhortation of scripture. It is indeed the authoritative and powerful word of God spoken through the words of men. And I go on from there to answer an important question. What, what is the preached word? What do we mean by the fact that it is the word of God? That is, that is also the instrumental word. I make a distinction between personal word, which is Christ, true God, true man, canonical word, which is the scriptures, and instrumental word, that is the preaching of the word of God. And by instrumental, we mean that it is the ongoing means through which God effectually speaks to his people. Again, this does not mean that the preaching is equal to the Bible. The Bible is inspired and without error. Preaching is illuminated and may err. But what is critical to understand is that 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul is saying that when the preaching of the word is in accordance with the canonical word, it carries the same authority and power as the Bible. And that's amazing. So it is the word of God. It is the instrumental word. Third, I highlight that it is the creating and recreating speech of God. Speech of God demonstrates his power both in creation and in recreation. I, I highlight Dr. Carl Truman's uh, theses, provided seven theses on God and preaching. These are from his lectures, uh, Reformation Preaching in the Modern Mind. His first thesis is God is a God from whom speech is the primary vehicle of creation, presence, power, authority, and new creation. So I look at Genesis 1, 1 through 3, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And in this section, we see that as God's speech, faithful preaching is recreating all things through the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the word of God. It is the instrumental word. It is the creating and recreating speech of God. Lastly here, it is the word and presence of Christ. I spend time in Romans 10, 14 through 17. Ephesians 2, uh, 17. In, in Romans 10, Paul turns to the means. He turns to the means that God has ordained to make this gospel known for salvation, and the means is proclamation. This is how God brings the message of salvation to humanity. This is the instrumental word. This is the normative foundation. The word and presence of Christ and the proclamation lies at the heart of this passage. Uh, consider the second question Paul gives in verse 14. In the ESV, it says, of whom they have never heard. Or it could be translated, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? I think the second translation better reflects the original language here. Paul goes on to ask, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? He concludes, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The last question in verse 14 can also be translated, how can they hear without preaching? which emphasizes the preaching of Christ himself. 
So Paul's saying that it is Christ who speaks and it is Christ who is present in the faithful preaching of the word. John Murray said the implication here is that Christ speaks. Christ speaks in the gospel proclamation. After I spend some time in Romans 10, I also uh, spend some time in Ephesians 2. Uh, in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16, we read of how Christ purchased peace. In chapter 1, he sang of the power of Christ and redemption. He then showed that that same power of Christ is at work in the church, in their individual redemption, in their corporate reconciliation. And in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, we find the theme of peace and unity between Jew and Gentile in Christ. And Paul continues to show the implications of God's power in the life of the church. We read of how Christ purchased this peace in verses 11 through 16, and then how Christ preached this peace in verse 17. Now, some may interpret that verse 17 as referring only to Christ's earthly ministry, but it's more than that. First, Paul already wrote about how Christ purchased his peace in verses 11 through 16. Paul already had written of Christ coming to live and to die and to be raised. All this is assumed. And second, if you notice the you in this context, the you are those who were afar off and those who are near, both Gentiles and Jews. And so the question comes up, how is Paul saying it was to the Jews and to the Gentiles that Christ preached if Christ's ministry was mainly to the Jews? If we look at a prophecy in Isaiah 57 and the fulfillment of that prophecy in Acts 26, we see that it was through Paul's proclamation that Christ was preaching. Through Paul's proclamation, Christ, our ascended Redeemer, preaches peace through the fruitful, faithful preaching of his word here below. So when your preacher stands in the pulpit and you are seated listening, you are living the fulfillment of this passage. That's, that's also quite amazing. So we see that in terms of what preaching is, briefly, preaching is the word of God. It is the instrumental word. It is the creating and recreating speech of God. It is the word and presence of Christ. Well, I think this next question will help us piggyback and give you further opportunity to speak to what you've already been alluding to, what's happening when the word of God is being preached, uh, you even alluded in your last answer that when the preaching of the word of God is accurately preached, it is as if it is the word of God itself. Um, but can you further describe to our audience what is happening when the preacher is declaring God's word? Yeah. So in chapter three, you continue to look at this definition. And I'll repeat it again. The preaching, preaching as the primary means of grace is the word of God at work in all who are listening, both judging and saving through the word and presence of Christ, who makes it to have saving effect upon his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And here I provide a few marks of what is happening. First, God is working. Again, we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We read again, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, Paul says there, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And he adds here, which is at work in you believers. Paul is saying that the word preached, that word of God was at work in the Thessalonian church. 
this teaches us an important lesson. Preaching is more than just information. It's more than just exhortation. It is more than a human preacher addressing a human listener. It's the primary means God has chosen to use to work in the souls of sinners. Paul, in his uh, first letter to the church of Corinth, says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He goes on, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God is working. Calvin comments on this passage here in 1 Thessalonians. He says, the relative pronoun may be taken as referring either to God or to his word. But whichever way you choose, the meaning will come all to one. For as the Thessalonians felt in themselves the divine energy, which proceeded from faith, they might rest assured that what they had heard was not a mere sound of the human voice vanishing into air, but the living and efficacious doctrine of God. So God is working. This is what is happening. We can rest assured that as we sit under faithful preaching, God is working. Second, I highlight the Holy Spirit is empowering. How is God accomplishing his will by his divine speech? The answer is the power of the Holy Spirit. This takes us to 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 4 through 5. Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, he says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So the Holy Spirit is empowering. The word and spirit cannot be separated. When the word is faithfully proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is empowering. We see this in the Second London Confession in chapter 10, paragraph 1. It reads, Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death into which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. In second LCF uh, chapter 13, paragraph one, we read, they who are united to Christ effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are also farther sanctified really and personally through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them. Bob Inc., he wrote this. I think this states it quite uh, quite profoundly. The Holy Spirit is not an unconscious power, but a person, he says, who is always present with that word. He always sustains it and makes it active, though not always in the same manner. And that leads us to the third mark of what happens in preaching. And that is God is judging and saving. Truman, in his uh, his work, the word as a means of grace. He writes, God's speech continues to be the primary mode of his action and continues to reshape reality or to bring new things into being. He says, thus the preacher stood at the very center of the spiritual struggle of the present age, both for judgment and for grace. The preaching of the word is both judging and saving because of its content. Its content is law and gospel, judgment and salvation. That means it is either tearing down or building up. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God, and it is either saving or judging everyone who is present in the congregation. We might ask ourselves, I, I thought preaching is a means of grace. 
It is, but its content is the law and the gospel. And this content addresses both the believer and the unbeliever. The unbeliever in the congregation will continue to be torn down or hardened by the law and confronted by the true reality of the gospel. And the believer, though, continuing to be torn down and guided by the law will be built up, strengthened, and comforted in the gospel. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's... And, and so we... The last, the very last mark is the word is having saving effect. We can rest assured that while God is both judging and saving, the word is having saving effect, regardless of what our eyes may see or our ears may hear. Preaching by God's spirit is having a good effect on those who hear it. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 13, verse 14. He tells him, Therefore you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And there, just briefly, we can see that uh, we find two ways this preached word had good effect upon the church. First, the process of transformation. Thessalonian believers became imitators of the church of God in Christ. They were not merely hearers. Rather, that living word, the faithful preaching of the word, came with power, power of the Holy Spirit, and worked in their lives such that they were being changed. This is what is happening when the preaching of the word is taking place. A transformation is taking place. But second, you see the proof of affliction. The Thessalonians heard the preaching of the word, and they turned to God through faith in Christ. And the proof was they suffered for Christ. Um, and so the transformation and the willingness to face affliction, again, was the direct result of the word of Christ. And this doesn't, this really highlights uh, the necessity for faith. Because we may be thinking to ourselves, all this is really happening. Is, is this really happening? And the answer is yes, but the good effect into salvation is only brought about through faith. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I believe that this is what preaching is? Do I believe that this is what is happening in preaching? Otherwise, we may sit under faithful preaching and it will not profit our souls. Very well said. And, um, you know, I think of back to when I was kind of new to Reformed theology, wrestling with the doctrines of grace and, um, you know, starting to get a little bit more immersed into the tradition. I, I heard about the means of grace and, and didn't really have any clarity as to what was being um, referred to when that label was being thrown around. So it, it's really good for our listeners who may be newer to Reformed theology, particular, particular Baptist theology, to, to get that clarification that you've provided, especially how the means of grace pertains to preaching. So thank you so much, Julius, for um, your words there and, and for your um, longer elaboration that you have in your book. In light of some of these positive definitions and um, descriptions that you've provided about the means of grace and specifically with regard to preaching, are there any denials um, or maybe even misrepresentations of the means of grace that you identify in the book or just for the sake of our conversation now uh, that you would be willing to bring up uh, that may be of, of value for our listeners to be aware of? Yeah, in chapter chapter four, after I laid down the definition and defend that um, and describe what preaching is, what happens in preaching, in chapter four, I turn to the denials um, because while we look to scripture and we look to the confessions and catechisms of the church and uh, 
preaching as a means of grace is presented quite clearly. The sad thing is preaching is not understood this way by the majority in our day. And this is due to several uh, denials. And I state just three in the book. And the first one I, I highlight is sacramentalism. There I say Rome attributes a kind of magical value to the means of grace in general and rejects the normative foundation of scripture in particular. We reject as uh, reformed Catholics, lowercase c, that from the work being performed ex opera operato, the person participating is in a state of salvation. But for Rome, the church itself is the foundation for the scriptures we would disagree with that. We would believe that scripture is the foundation of the church, that from this foundation, we confess that Christ is the complete savior, the only mediator between God and men, that the church is not the mediator. Its ministers are not a priesthood that administers salvation through sacrament, but the church is a communion of saints. And those men who are its ministers, unlike Rome's magisterium, are bound where? They're bound absolutely to Christ's word, and they have no other power than the power of that word. So if one believes that preaching is the primary means of grace, they deny sacramental, sacramentalism. Um, but this doesn't mean that we deny the sacramental character of preaching. This is important. While we reject the, mag the magical view of Rome, we affirm that preaching has a sacramental character. And uh, Beach writes in his article, The Real Presence of Christ in the Preaching of the Gospel. He says, it both conveys theological information, we believe it also conveys with this information the presence of Christ himself. That is to say, he writes, Christ is acting in the words of the preacher. And that's very important. We deny sacramentalism, but we affirm the sacramental character of preaching. The second denial is mysticism or pietism. A form of mysticism, I should say. And... They deny the idea of the means of grace. They deny the idea of the means of grace. Uh, using the words of Bavink, that inner word or light that works grace in humans, for, for the pietist, that's primary. What happens internally is what really matters. If one has that, then they have everything they need. Now, there are a number of assumptions that come with the mystic or pietist position. Uh, first, they believe God's omnipotence is... His ability to do all things cannot be bound or restricted by external means. Uh, second, they believe that God's grace primarily concerns his action without means in the heart. Third, they believe that many people outwardly participate in the word and sacrament and then die without being real participants in grace. At least some of them would subscribe to this. The assumption would be, really, what benefit can these outward means give? But if one believes that preaching is the primary means of grace, they deny pietism. They deny this kind of mysticism and confess that Christ has instituted activities that once again, he's promised to bless. God, according to his infinite wisdom, he's chosen to exercise his power in the gospel, which is preached into the salvation of everyone who believes. So if we affirm preaching as the primary means of grace, we deny not only sacramentalism, but also uh, this form of mysticism or pietism. Uh, lastly, in the book, I highlight uh, revivalism. If we uphold preaching as the primary means of grace, we deny revivalism. Now, the revivalism that we deny uh, is, not, is not to mean that God sovereignly, powerfully works through the means of his word preached. 
at particular times, bringing about many true conversions and renewed spiritual maturity. It's not to deny that. It's to deny the kind of revivalism that emphasizes mountaintop experiences, experiences which are deemed necessary for true conversion and spiritual growth. So this perspective of revivalism would focus upon the, the preacher to the degree that it would be dependent on the preacher. True awakening, as it were, is dependent on the presence of this one man. The preacher's charisma, his oratorical skill, the command of an audience is what's necessary for there to be, quote-unquote, revival among sinners. But the sad aftermath of this kind of revivalism is seeing the Great Commission turn into a one-man show with one kind of mission, and that's to get the people to make a decision. But if we confess uh, that preaching is the primary means of grace, then we believe that the salvation of sinners is not dependent on the charisma, oratorical skill, or presence of a man who stands on a stage and uses the Bible to lose sinners. We believe that salvation belongs to the Lord, and it is the Lord who saves his people through the primary means of faithful proclamation. And that's, I think that last one is, a, is particularly comforting should be a particular comfort to the preacher. Should we improve our gifts and our graces to the glory of God and the edification of the church? Of course. But I'm not depending on me. The faithful preacher is not depending on himself. We, we trust what the scriptures say that preaching is and what's happening, and we are dependent upon the invisible yet uh, invincible work of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, in that last episode, you were giving us some of the duties of the preacher. Uh, you can continue to speak to that, but I want to open up this next question to include what are some of the duties of the listeners as the word of God is being preached? Yeah, I, um, I went there in the book before I touched on the duties of the preacher. Uh, again, highlighting my goal, that first question, one of the first questions you asked me earlier, uh, what do I want to see? I want, I want to see uh, ordinary church members take up the book and reflect on their theology of preaching. Everyone has a theology. What is their theology? Uh, and pursue to be more, more faithful hearers of the word preached. And in chapter five, I, I highlight two duties uh, of the hearer. The first is remembering the reality of Christ's present activity. Remembering the reality of Christ's present activity. Uh, here, I, I encourage the, uh, the listener that if they're going to profit from preaching, they need to do some self-examination of their theology of preaching. And this is where remembering the reality is critical. Because remembering doesn't begin the moment the preacher announces to open up their Bibles uh, this needs to begin before they enter into worship. We need to prepare our minds well in advance. And how do we do this? Not only do we need a good night's sleep, we need to study what God's word, study what the catechisms and confessions of faith say concerning preaching. We also need to, to practice prayer as a means of grace. We need to rehearse the truths we have summarized uh, earlier. Um, and we also need to pray. We need to ask the Lord in prayer to help us remember the theological reality of the preaching event. We need to pray in light of the word, remembering what God has promised to do in preaching. Uh, as one of uh, 
as one pastor, one of my mentors suggested, we must not only receive the faithful preaching of the word as the word of God, but he says, as the word of God to us, about us, and for us. We need a tender heart to remember that the faithful preaching of the word is the word of Christ. And along with this is receiving the word of God immediately. You know, it takes time for the word to settle upon us. I think we can all attest to that, for the heart of stone to be to be cracked, for the fruit of this conviction to show. But nevertheless, God is more pleased by the immediate reception of the word. And so we would do well to ask ourselves, what, we, what will we do to foster this conviction? What will we do to differently so that we come to the preaching ready to receive it as what it really is, the word of Christ? And... Um, I go on in that chapter to ask, what does this look like? And not only is it remembering Christ's uh, present activity, that reality, but also practicing our responsibility. To receive the word of God immediately is to believe it and to obey it. And as one of our particular Baptist forefathers, Nehemiah Cox wrote, he said, the ministry can never be effectual to your souls if you be not sincere in obedience under it. I think that's quite a quite convicting. Ministry can never be effectual to your souls if you be not sincere under it. So my second exhortation uh, in this chapter is not only to remember the reality of Christ's present activity, but also to practice faith and humility. Um, what Christ is doing in the act of preaching establishes our responsibility to prepare and enter into worship, trusting in Christ, humble before the very word of Christ. Now, you know, practicing faith is not merely recalling that we need to have faith. It's, it's coming to Christ, trusting in him, knowing that he gives us the grace to continue to trust in him. It's important to remember the way this faith came in the first place is the way this faith continues, and that's, that's by the external word of Christ preached. We need a word outside of us to save us, and the only word is the word of Christ. You know, when I, write, when I wrote this book, um, I was experiencing a very difficult time in my life, just a lot of challenging circumstances. And I wrote this book first and foremost for my own soul. What I needed was to reflect upon that word of Christ. You know, so often we can, we can learn the, the precious truths concerning uh, these means of grace and then enter into corporate worship with uh, this, this passive familiarity. And we cheat ourselves from the, from the real blessing that comes when we remember and we come with fullness of faith, trusting that God is working through these ordinary means to bless us, that we may behold more and more of the glory of Christ. So here I, I, I try to highlight not only faith, but also humility. Because with the responsibility of faith in the word of Christ comes the needed posture for humility before the word of Christ. Um, the thing is, if you know, we're honest with ourselves, we fail to submit when we forget the reality of Christ's presence. And, and we think we're merely listening to the words of men. When we think that we are merely listening to the words of men, we open up the door to despise the preaching. We may not admit it, but we can despise it by expecting too much out of the interpretation, misunderstanding the variety in application, or thinking narrowly about the preacher's method and presentation, 
Instead, we, re- we must and we need to understand that we honor God as we honor the instrument that he has ordained. And um, I just wanted to read to you just a brief excerpt from Calvin's call. Calvin addresses this specifically. He says, if we covet to be built up in him and to be joined to him and to be steadfast in him to the end, to be short, if we desire our salvation, we must learn to be humble learners in receiving the doctrine of the gospel and in hearkening to the pastors that are sent to us as if, he says, as if Jesus Christ spoke to us himself in his own person, assuring ourselves that he will acknowledge the obedience and submission of our faith when we listen to the mortal men to whom he has given that charge. So we need to practice faith and humility, recognizing uh, that true reality that when that faithful man enters the pulpit, Christ stands with him. And Christ promises that he will speak and he will bless his people. So those are at least a summary of the two duties uh, that I highlight in that chapter. That was probably my favorite chapter to uh, to write um, because I've seen it. I've seen it in the church. I've seen faithful men preach and uh, I've seen congregations you know, go asunder. And it's, it's not the man's fault. It's people, brothers and sisters, thinking that uh, if they're just under good preaching, that, that there's going to be a, a prophet and forgetting that they need to come with that posture of humility and faith. So I can, I, I can, I can say that chapter five is, I would consider chapter five the heart of the book. The heart of the book. Amen. Yeah. You know, I, I hear echoes of um, Calvin as he emphasized the, the act of worship when you're sitting under the preaching of God's word. The, the um, congregants are to be active in their receiving the word preached by faith and taking hold of the promises of God by faith, not just sitting there as passive bystanders, um, but they are active in the act of preaching mm-hmm. itself. So I really like how you stress that um, in the duties of the listeners um, in conjunction with the duties of the preachers as well. Um, For our listeners, this is a remarkable book. Uh, As you can tell from our discussion, you would be immensely blessed uh, by picking up a copy and um, beholding the glory of God and and how Christ can be beholden in the act of preaching um, by faith. So as we transition now into wrapping up our our discussion, it has been such a delight to have you on, Julius. I just want to know if there are any final words of encouragements that you might have uh, for our listeners about your book or maybe just about preaching in general if you want to share any particular preachers from the past or present that you could commend uh, to our listeners maybe who have had an influence in your life and your ministry and and in the development of this book as well Um, we'd really be interested to hear your feedback on that yeah so um when i'd recommend um first for the preacher to to read uh, the preachers within the Christian tradition, pick up uh, faithful men from uh, the early church to the patristic age through the medieval church, Reformation, post-Reformation church, read their sermons. Uh, Second, read good secondary source material uh, that has expounded upon that material. Um, And third, be be under faithful preaching. 
you need you need to hear it you need to receive it the, the faithful preacher needs to receive it just as much as he needs to preach it <laughs> um and for uh for the hearer um my exhortation remains remember the reality of christ's present activity and practice faith and humility uh, be rehearsing these truths um this book is just a summary it's to it's to to lead you into the lobby and let you enjoy the rest that is there um, that is summarized in the creeds and confessions and in, in many of the works uh, of our of our brothers uh, throughout the ages that have uh, faithfully expounded and labored uh, in, in in doing doing this work uh, in a manner that is that is pleasing unto the Lord and so uh, similar to the to the preacher uh, you need to be under it and and perhaps even as you're under it you know, ask your pastor what are his what have been those preachers that uh, uh, encouraged him the most and take up those sermons and read uh, we need we need the word of Christ uh, and that's what I what I hope to, to stress in this book and um, that ordinary way that that primary way is is the word faithfully preached We have been enjoying a wonderful discussion with our friend Julia Santiago on the subject of preaching as a means of grace. We hope you found this episode edifying for your soul. And as always, we wish you grace and peace from the Covenant Podcast. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.